Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 158 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today's big Bible question, who are the four horsemen of the apocalypse? So happy Thursday, friends. Hope you're having as nice a weather as we've been having in Central California the past few days. Now that I am opening the podcast by discussing the weather, we can verify that this show has officially jumped the shark. It's been a good run, though, and I do appreciate you listening as much as you have. Well, today's Bible readings include Deuteronomy 8, Psalms 91, Isaiah 36, and Revelation chapter 6, which is our focus passage. And I'm just going to be honest with you, it's probably going to be tough for me to focus on another chapter other than Revelation for the next few days. But we did do Deuteronomy yesterday, and I'll try going forward. I'm just pretty big into the book of Revelation. Today's question is all about the fabled four horsemen of the apocalypse And there are two very different and distinct ways to answer the question of who they are, depending on whether or not you are right now listening to a pro wrestling podcast or a daily Bible reading podcast, which the question itself reminds me of another philosophy joke that I found while looking for a non-boring podcast opening last week. And here is one of my favorite philosophy jokes. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson decided to go on a camping trip. After dinner and a bottle of wine, they laid down for the night and went to sleep. Some hours later, Holmes awoke and nudged his faithful friend. Watson, look up at the sky and tell me what you see. Watson replied, I see millions of stars. What does that tell you? Watson pondered for a minute. Astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, I observe that Saturn is in Leo. Horologically, I deduce that the time is approximately a quarter past three. Theologically, I can see that God is all-powerful and that we are small and insignificant. Meteorologically, I suspect that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. What does it tell you, Holmes? Holmes was silent for a moment, then spoke. Watson, you idiot, someone has stolen our tent. Ah, very droll, and it brings us to the first mystery we have to solve together. Is this a wrestling podcast or a daily Bible podcast? Well, let's examine the clues, Watson. Was there a loud glass breaking and aggressive music at the beginning? Has anybody yet asked if we could smell what the rock was cooking? Has there been any instances of loud wooing? Has there been any talk of saying our prayers and taking our vitamins? Well, I guess that one's a wash, eh? We might be talking about saying our prayers. The answer to most of those questions is no. No Hulkamaniacs, no full Nelsons, no Frankensteiners off the top rope, no stone-cold stunners or rock bottoms, and unfortunately, no swanton bombs. I guess we can conclude that this is not a wrestling podcast, and thus the answer to our question about the Four Horsemen is not Ric Flair, Arn Anderson, Tully Blanchard, and Ola Anderson. No, my friends, this is a Bible podcast, and the place we turn to for our answers is the Bible. So let's read Revolution, Revelation chapter 6 and discuss the real four horsemen. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Then I saw the Lamb open one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there was a white horse. Its rider held a bow. A crown was given to him, and he went out as a conqueror in order to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse went out, a fiery red one. 
and its rider was allowed to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another, and a large sword was given to him. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and there was a black horse. Its rider held a set of scales in his hands. Then I heard something like a voice among the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, but do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and there was a pale green horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following after him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, by famine, by plague, and by the wild animals of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? So they were each given a white robe, and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. Then I saw him open the sixth seal. A violent earthquake occurred. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of hair. The entire moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by a high wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, because the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So that is a very sobering and terrifying passage. Well, first thing to remember in our discussion when we're talking about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, apocalypse doesn't mean, at least in the book of Revelation, the same thing as cataclysm or Armageddon or whatever. We use the word differently today than the Greeks did in John's day. In their day, and thus the way John was using the word, apocalypse means a revealing or a revelation. So these horsemen are the four horsemen of revelation. Yes, they bring trouble and disaster, but they are serving the ends of the King of Kings, not the pretender. If you are familiar with the old Clint Eastwood film, Pale Rider, from 1985, it is a reference to the fourth horseman of the apocalypse, Death. By the way, shout out to Clint. His birthday was just a couple of days ago, and my family and I just got back from his city, Carmel-by-the-Sea, where he used to be the mayor, and I think he still lives over there. No, we didn't see him. Interestingly, the pale horse, or the hippos, which means horse, chloros, of Revelation 6, is actually more of a greenish horse, because chloros apparently means green. It's where we get the word chlorophyll from, as in green grass, at least according to Matthew 6.39. So why is the death horse green? It's actually a great question, one that's been kind of debated for a while. I think the best answer is this. The Greek word chloros can be translated as green, like bright green, like what we think, but also it can be a kind of gray, pale, greenish sort of tint that's not very pretty at all, which is what the excellent Greek scholar Robert Mounts argues in his commentary on Revelation, and I think that's probably the answer. The pale, greenish, gray horse and rider are likely meant to look like death and decay, 
specifically like a dead corpse, more so than like green grass or whatever. So to begin to understand these four horsemen, let's turn to end-time scholar George Eldon Ladd, who I think is going to give us some help in understanding the four horsemen. But understand, we're just kind of scratching the surface today. Um, we're not going to go into deep, deep details because I don't think we can. Too much of it would be conjecture. But this is what Dr. Ladd says. The revelation claims to depict the consummation of God's redemptive purpose involving both judgment and salvation. One of the key problems in the interpretation of the book is the relationship between the seals, trumpets, and bowls. In the solution of this problem may lie the key to the interpretation of the entire book. John sees a book in the form of a scroll sealed with seven seals along its outer edge, resting in the hand of God. No creature was found able to break the seals and open the book except the lion of the tribe of Judah, who was the slain lamb. This strikes the keynote of the book. The conquering lamb, who alone can disclose the hidden purposes of God, is the Jesus who died on the cross. So the little book, or the little scroll, is in the form of an ancient will, which was usually sealed with the seals of the seven witnesses. The book contains God's inheritance for his people, which is founded upon the death of his son. The saint's inheritance is the kingdom of God, but the blessings of God's kingdom cannot be bestowed apart from the destruction of evil. In fact, the very destruction of all evil powers is one of the blessings of God's kingly rule. Here is the twofold theme of the revelation. One, the judgment of evil, and two, the coming of the kingdom. The successive breaking of the seals does not gradually open the book. Its contents cannot be disclosed until the last seal is broken. However, as each seal is broken, something happens. After the first seal, conquest rides forth over the earth. After the second, war, then famine, and death, and martyrdom. Those are the four horsemen. Conquest, war, famine, death, and martyrdom. The sixth seal brings us to the end of the age and the coming of the great day of the Lord and of the wrath of the Lamb. This suggests that the events attending the breaking of the seals do not constitute the end itself, but events leading up to the end. This structure is paralleled in Matthew 24, where wars, famines, and other evils are but the, quote, beginning of woes, not the end itself, Matthew 24, 8. Furthermore, the conquering white horse parallels Matthew 24, 14 and pictures the victories to be won by the preaching of the gospel in the world. Many commentators feel that the four horsemen must be alike in kind and that the white horse must therefore represent some evil power. However, no woe is mentioned as with the other horsemen, and white in the Revelation is always associated with Christ or with spiritual victory. That the preaching of the gospel is associated with the plagues here is no more incongruous than it is in Matthew 24, 1-14. It is not an effective objection to say that the gospel in this present order will never be triumphant. This may be true, but the gospel does win victories. Both the sword and the bow are symbols of God's working among human beings. In the breaking of the five seals are disclosed the agencies of God, the agencies God uses before the end to lead up to the fulfillment of salvation and judgment, the preaching of the gospel, and the evils of war, death, famine, and martyrdom. 
These are, as it were, anticipations of the consummated salvation and judgment that are contained within the sealed book. The sixth seal brings us to the end, but with the breaking of the seventh seal, when the book itself can at last be opened with its contents disclosed, nothing happens. There is no woe. While it is in accordance with the flexibility of apocalyptic symbolism that the actual book now drops out of sight and its contents are never explicitly mentioned, the fact that the seventh seal is given no specific content suggests that all that follows, beginning with the seven trumpets, constitutes the contents of the book. Here then begins the actual unfolding of the judicial and redemptive events that constitute the consummation, the end of the world. We may conclude that a moderate futurist interpretation understands the seven letters to be addressed to seven historical churches that are representative of the entire church. The seals represent the forces in history, however long it lasts, by which God works out his redemptive and judicial purposes in history leading up to the end. The events beginning with chapter 7 lie in the future and will attend the final disposition of the divine will for human history. So, according to Dr. Ladd, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, or the four horsemen of Revelation, are, number one, conquest. Conquest in the sense of the proclamation of the gospel all over the earth. Now, the second is war, then famine, then death and martyrdom, which he kind of combines together, and I think I agree with him. In other words, as the Lamb unseals this will, this scroll, each of the seals um, causes something to happen. The first seal sends out the gospel into the earth on the backs of this horse. Now, is this symbolic? I think it is very symbolic language. And so the gospel is sent into the earth. After that, war comes upon the earth, then famine and death and martyrdom. Now, is has all of this been happening since the book of Revelation was written, or is it unfolding now? Well, I'm not sure. And the answer could sort of be a little bit of both. I suspect that uh you know one of the things Jesus says in Matthew 24 the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world and then the end will come there is obviously a strong tie between the intentional proclamation of the gospel and the end of the world as the gospel goes out to all the ends of the earth the world is being prepared for the final consummation of everything the end of everything so we have that to look forward to now is dr lad right Well, I have a great deal of respect for him as a theologian, particularly as it pertains to the last days, but there are as many views on who the four horsemen of the apocalypse are as there are states in the United States of America, maybe as there are cities in the United States of America. There's a lot of views out there. So take what Dr. Ladd said with a grain of salt, search the scriptures, consider it, read and reread Revelation 6, and I think the Lord will give us insight to that as we do. But it shows us that uh, as Joel, the book of Joel tells us, the last days, the end of times, the second coming, is often in Scripture called the great and terrible day of the Lord. So is it going to be great? Absolutely. Is it going to be terrible? Absolutely. It's going to be both. Well, let's continue reading in the Word. 
Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1, carefully follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and take possession of the land the Lord swore to your ancestors. Remember that the Lord your God led you on the entire journey these 40 years in the wilderness so that he might humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you by letting you go hungry. Then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your ancestors had not known, so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out, and your feet did not swell these forty years. Keep in mind that the Lord your God has been disciplining you, just as a man disciplines his son. So keep the commands of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with streams and springs and deep water sources flowing in both valleys and hills, a land of wheat, barley, vines, figs, and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you will eat food without shortage, where you will lack nothing, a land whose rocks are iron and from whose hills you will mine copper. When you eat and are full, you will bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commands, ordinances, and statutes that I am giving you today. When you eat and are full and build beautiful houses to live in and your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold multiply and everything else you have increases, be careful that your heart doesn't become proud and that you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its poisonous snakes and scorpions, a thirsty land where there was no water. He brought water out of the flint rock for you. He fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your ancestors had not known, in order to humble and test you, so that in the end he might cause you to prosper. You may say to yourself, my power and my own ability have gained this wealth for me, but remember that the Lord your God gives you you the power to gain wealth in order to confirm his covenant he swore to your ancestors as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods to serve them and bow in worship to them, I testify against you today that you will certainly perish. Like the nations the Lord is about to destroy before you, you will perish if you do not obey the Lord your God. Psalm 91. The one who lives under the protection of the Most High dwells in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say concerning the Lord, who is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, he himself will rescue you from the bird trap, from the destructive plague. He will cover you with his feathers. He will, You will take refuge under his wings. His faithfulness will be a protective shield. You will not fear the terror of the night, the arrow that flies by day, the plague that starts in darkness, or the pestilence that ravages at noon. Though a thousand fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, the pestilence will not reach you. You will only see it with your eyes and witness the punishment of the wicked, because you have made the Lord my refuge, the Most High, your dwelling place. No harm will come to you. No plague will come near your tent, for he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you in all your ways. They will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the young lion and the serpent. Because he has set his heart set on me, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls out to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and give him honor. I will satisfy him with a long life and show him my salvation. Amen. That is two days in a row that we have had excellent psalms 
that are very apropos for our current pandemic quarantine times. Psalm 90 and 91. Isaiah 36. Sennacherib's invasion. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, King Sennacherib of Assyria attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent his royal spokesman along with a massive army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. The Assyrians stood near the conduit of the upper pool by the road to Launderer's Field. Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, who was in charge of the palace, Shebna, the court secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the court historian, came out to him. The royal spokesman said to them, Tell Hezekiah, the great king, the king of Assyria, says this, What are you relying on? You think their words, are mere words, are strategy and strength for war. Who are you now relying on now that you've rebelled against me? Look, you are relying on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff that will pierce the hand of anyone who grabs it and leans on it. This is how Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is to all who rely on him. Suppose you say to me, we rely on the Lord our God. Isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you are to worship at this altar? Now, make a deal with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you two thousand horses if you're able to supply riders for them. How then can you drive back a single officer among the least of my master's servants? How can you rely on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Have I attacked this land to destroy it without the Lord's approval? The Lord said to me, Attack this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joash said to the royal spokesman, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew within earshot of the people who are on the wall. But the royal spokesman replied, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men who are sitting on the wall, who are destined with you to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine? Then the royal spokesman stood and called out loudly in Hebrew, Listen to the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Don't let Hezekiah deceive you, for he cannot rescue you. Don't let Hezekiah persuade you to rely on the Lord, saying the Lord will certainly rescue us. This city will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. Now, don't listen to Hezekiah, for this is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and surrender to me. Then every one of you may eat from his own vine and own fig tree and drink water from his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land. A land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you by saying the Lord will rescue us. Has any of the gods of the nations rescued his hand, his land from the power of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they rescued Samaria from my power? Who among all the gods of these lands has ever rescued his land from my power? So will the Lord rescue Jerusalem from my power? But they kept silent. They didn't say anything, for the king's command was, Don't answer him. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, who was in charge of the palace, Shebna, the court secretary, and Joash, son of Asaph, the court historian, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and reported to him, the words of the royal spokesman. Well, amen. That sounds like an exciting thing to keep following. Maybe the beginning of a good movie. 
So we'll pick it up tomorrow, Isaiah 37. Friends, may the word of God be a blessing to you. May it build you up and give you strength and encouragement in this time of difficulties across our land. Glory be to God and Godspeed to you. Amen.